Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Mike Flint. But first, for more information about Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free to you. And first, some news and commentary that's on my mind. Producer Steve, we talk all the time about it. In a nutshell, if you're a business and you get the bright idea or more likely hire a college indoctrinated DEI executive at an inflated salary in the six figures, you're paying for some bad advice if you start selling to the Gen Z woke broke consumer and will piss off your loyal base at the same time that made you successful in the first place. So here you go. Victoria's Secret, you know, the sexy lady underwear line that gave us such beauties as Stephanie Seymour, Heidi Klum, Tyra Banks, Giselle Bundchen, who went crazy and divorced Tom Brady and is allegedly a practicing witch, ditches woke rebrand and sales continue to decline. Not been enough to carry the day by Chris Enloe. Victoria's Secret's progressive experiment did not work. Over the past several years, Victoria's Secrets changed its marketing plan to be more inclusive, hiring LGBT activist Megan Rapinoe and transgender model Valentina Sampio, among others, and diversified its models, especially in the plus-size department. In 2019, the company scrapped its annual runway show over complaints of sexism and a lack of diversity. Two years later, Victoria's Secrets' angels were no more. Rapinoe infamously described Victoria's Secret's images as patriarchal and sexist, which she claimed was marketed through a male lens and through what men desired. The attempt to refine sexy in the image of woke social justice may have earned favorable reviews from online critics, according to Business of Fashion, but it never translated into sales. In fact, Victoria's Secret is on track to earn $6.2 billion in revenue this year, a 5% decline from last year, which significantly trails the $7.5 billion the company made in 2020, $1.3 billion less. Ouch. Despite everyone's best endeavors, it's not been enough to carry the day, Victoria's Secret CEO Martin Waters told investors at a meeting this month. Business of Fashion reported in a story declaring the progressive rebrand over. By the way, the estimated net worth of Martin P. Waters is at least $33 million, Nice for him. Mr. Waters owns over 90,000 units of L Brands Inc. stock worth over $25 million. And over the last seven years, he sold LB stock worth over $3.5 million. In addition, he makes $4 million as chief executive officer, Victoria's Secrets lingerie at L Brands Inc. Okay, back to the story. Now the company hopes returning to its old traditions will reverse declining sales. Last month, the Victoria's Secrets fashion show returned with a format that business of fashion described as, quote, Somewhere in between the personification of male lust of the brand's aughts era heyday and the inclusive utopia promoted by its many disruptors, end quote. The company is also featuring models like Haley Bieber and Emily Ratajowski, among other supermodels who have worked for the company in the past in new ad campaigns. It's a far cry from the direction the company tried to carve out just a few years ago. By tightly controlling its brand image, updating its brick and mortar locations, and offering new active and swimwear, Victoria's Secret hopes to push its annual revenue back over the $7 billion hump. I bet Mr. Waters would like that. The article continues. 
the admis admission about the woke rebrand and changes in company direction come less than a year after Amy Hawk abruptly resigned as CEO after only eight months in the role. Under Hawk's leadership, Victoria's Secrets leaned into the woke changes and decline sales followed. The estimated network of Amy Hawk is at least $4.7 million. Could have done better. Ms. Hawk, 56, should have known better. Owns over 4,000 units of Victoria's Secret and stock worth over $1.7 million. And over the last 20 years, she sold VSCO stock worth over $2.9 million. VSCO is down 59.83% over the last five years. Go woke, go broke. Shareholders should sue. If you're like me and sick of the woke, unfunny content coming out of Hollywood these days and looking for something new and exciting, I found the website for you, movienight.com. The folks at movienight.com, that's movienight, one word, .com, has the first universal loyalty program that offers businesses like yours the opportunity to attract customers with their exclusive lineup of world-class titles. Titles like Daddy Daughter Trip with Rob Schneider, Triumph with Terrence Howard, and Nefarious, last year's blockbuster hit. Movie Night was founded to positively impact society through media. Check it out at movienight.com and enjoy the show. I don't Our people in the news episode where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today we are talking with Mike Flint, born on July 26, 1949, as the only son of a World War II veteran. Mike Flint's immense passion, bring him in, Steve, for sports came from his father, J.V. Flint. During his time with the Permian Panthers, which you may recognize from Friday Night Lights. Flint was part of the high school's first state championship team and named a member of the all-district team. As a result of his accomplishments in a state known for its high school football, Texas, Flint received interest from several college programs, but blinded by love for his high school girlfriend, Flint ultimately attended Ranger Junior College for one semester before moving on to Division III Sol Ross State in 1969. As a member of the Lobos, Flint was named team captain as a junior and honored as an all-conference linebacker. Unfortunately, despite his success on the field, it was his actions off the field that led to his dismissal from the team and school. After 10 fights, including one with a freshman teammate, Flint was expelled ahead of his senior season. Quote, I never stopped thinking about the loss of that senior year, Flint remembers. While he still completed his degree away from campus, his dream of finishing his college football career came to an unfortunate end, or so he thought. Mike worked various jobs, including time as the strength and conditioning coach at the universities of Nebraska, Oregon, and Texas A&M. But the one thing that still ate away at him was his unfilled, unfulfilled dream, his senior season of college football. And now here he is with us on the Mill Creek View podcast, Mike Flint, the senior. How are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm outstanding. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Listening to you read all that, I was sitting there thinking, well, that guy was nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's a made for movie, right? So Yeah, yeah. 
You're from um, Franklin, Tennessee, where I am right now, right? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I live here in Franklin. We've been here for 38, uh, 38 years now. We went back for uh, back to Texas for six months uh, to play football, but then we, you know, Franklin's our home now. That's where all our kids and grandkids are, most of them, anyway. So this is home. All right. Well, welcome here. But you did most of this uh, story in Texas. It's a Texas story. Uh, right. a lot, just like Friday Night Lights, you said, I can't even recount the times that I cried over the loss. It became the greatest regret in my life. Tell yeah, us about was, that. Yeah, it, that, that, was, uh, that was a very private thing for me. I, in fact, Eileen, I never even shared with her uh, the depth of the regret that I had. And it, and it wasn't so much just me. I started thinking about, see, we were picked to win the conference. We had everybody back from um, an eight and three season before and going into my senior year, we were picked to win the Lone Star Conference. And the Lone Star Conference at that time was one of the most competitive conferences in the nation because we were integrated. We had so many great black athletes playing in that conference. And so um, they were picked to win the conference. I get kicked out. Uh, I'm their team captain, leading defensive player on that team. And, uh, they go four, six, and one. They don't even have a winning season. And I knew, I knew that if I'd been there, it had been different. And so I shouldered that. And again, I didn't share it with anyone. It's just, it just um, ate on me, you know, that, man, uh, what what would have happened if, I, if I'd have been able to be, go back and play? And so that was the 1969 season? And, that, and... Well, well, it was, that was the 19... Um, uh, 71 season that I was doing. Yeah. Okay. The year I was born. Okay. So fast forward to your college reunion in 2007 and former teammate reminiscing about the good old days. Uh, let's see. I think it was Satchel Paige who used to say, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? I'd be in my late twenties or early thirties because that's how I feel. Flint said, you told them getting kicked off the team was the biggest regret of your life. And you still had what it took to compete well, why don't you? So at what age did you go back and start this this whole well, journey? Stan Williamson made that challenge. And, you know, everybody was laughing. I told them, I said, you know, I, I still think I can play. And they were, <laughs> these guys, my old teammates were laughing at me. And Stan was sitting there, he was looking at me just as stone-faced. And he said, well, why don't you? And I said, well, what do you mean, why don't I? There's no way I've got eligibility you know, after all these years. And uh, he said, hey, uh, man, uh, they've changed to Division Three now. It's a whole new set of, ro- set of rules. He said, that's the greatest regret you've got in life. If you think you can run with those guys and take the hits, you need to check it out. And that's how, that's how it started. I couldn't think about anything else <laughs> the whole weekend. It was just, uh, you know, who could I call? Who could I reach out to? that could give me some information that wouldn't think I was crazy, you know, that could give me some factual information about eligibility. And then it hit me, my linebacker coach, he was my go-to guy. Whenever I got in trouble, I get um, thrown in jail for fighting and he'd bail me out, run me half to death, but it was my linebacker coach, coach Larned. But I hadn't talked to him in almost 40 years, but I, I, I'd stayed up with his career. I, I knew he was living in Abilene. And so I called directory assistance, got a home number for him and um, called and his wife answered the phone. And uh, I said, Mrs. Larner, this is Mike Flint, his coach around. 
she said, uh, Mike Flint. Yeah, Mike, he's standing right here. She said, uh, um, Jerry, Mike Flint's on the phone. He came to the phone. He said, Mike, are you in jail? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, coach, that's why I'm calling. And then I told him, I said, look, I'm dead serious about something. I want to ask your opinion about what it is that I need to do. So he, you know, he told me, uh, he said, uh, um, how old are you, Mike? And I said, well, I'm 59. And he said, well, I think you're crazy. Uh, he said, but if you tell me you can play, I know you and I believe you. If you tell me, can you play? And I said, coach, I think I can play. And he said, all right, here's who you need to call. Well, he gave me the lady's name at the American Southwest Conference Rules Division. And uh, I, uh, I call fully expecting to get a litany of people that I had to go through. And she answered the phone. And so all of a sudden I'm flat footed and I thought this is really going to be weird. And so I started talking about a friend of mine that wanted to find out if he had eligibility and it became so confusing. I finally, I said, ma'am, look, I said, I'm talking about me. I, this is me. I, I was kicked out during two a days back in 1971. And she said, were you enrolled in class? And I said, I was not. She said, get your transcript. So I went through my transcript with her and she said, well, uh, Mr. Flint, how many years did you say had been since you played? And I said, well, it's, it's been 37 years. She said, well, not only are you eligible, but I will come watch you play. <laughs> and so anyway, that, that's how it, uh, that's how it got started. That is fantastic. And Mike wrote a book called the senior, my amazing year as a 59 year old college football linebacker, which features a forward from LeBron James. What was your connection with LeBron James? Well, um, LeBron's office, Maverick Carter, reached out to me um, um, close to the end of uh, the 2007 season and said that they were really um, excited. They've been watching me um, throughout the course of the season, and uh, they were starting a new management company and wanted me to be part of that and wondered if would I be interested in having them as um as my managers and I just you know you know LeBron James you know and so um I flew uh, they flew me back to to Cleveland um went to a couple of games um had spent some time with LeBron got to meet his family his mom and um Maverick and Maverick Carter and I spent a lot of time together over about a three-year time period and so um uh, when I wrote, finished writing the book in 2008, um, Don Yeager, co-author, said, do you think LeBron would uh, write the forward on this? And I said, well, I know I can ask him whether or not he'll commit to doing that. I don't know. But he was, uh, he said, yes. He said, I'm, uh, I'd be excited about doing, honored to do that for you. And so he did. He wrote a great forward. And, uh, you know, we, they're no longer my management group, but we've stayed, you know, we've stayed in touch all these years. Uh, they're wonderful people. Just amazing. People can get that book on Amazon or barnesandnobles.com anywhere. Books are right. Sold. Yes. And we've rewritten the book and they're waiting for the movie to be released. Uh, Thomas Nelson um, is uh, waiting for the movie to be released and then they'll uh, release the, the updated version of, uh, of the senior, the book. Makes sense. And so now will be a feature length film entitled The Senior, uh, ready for release. And we'll star Michael Chiklis as you, Mike Flint. Yes. Um, you said, if I helped anyone by what I did, then it will all be worth it. And you did. 
Tom Thompson II, at the age of 61, became the second oldest football player in NCAA history as a place kicker for the Austin College Fighting Ruse. That same year, Alan Moore, who was just months older than Thompson, claimed the record as he suited up for Faulkner University as their place kicker. So you helped not one, but two people so far doing exactly what you said. Um, now, what I find interesting is that whenever somebody, whenever I was telling somebody I was going to be inter interviewing Mike Flint about this story, they would say, what, was he a place kicker? It's like, well, okay, that's obviously a cushier job. We kind of get it, but yeah. no, you were a linebacker. Tell yeah. us about the experience of going back at age 59 and suiting up as a linebacker to actually start. Well, the, um, uh, the challenge, you know, of course, I had always had this mindset about those linebacking positions when I was young that one of them's mine and somebody's going to have to take it from me. <laughs> and so I carried that same mindset, you know, back uh, at age 59, but I've never played in a 59-year-old body before. <laughs> and so I didn't think there was going to be enough ice in Alpine, Texas uh, to make it through two-a-days. I mean, I you know, the, the recovery time as you get older uh, you don't get past that soreness um, like you do when you're younger. And I was sore all the time, but it, it was um, the, the experience of, of playing, con uh, having full contact again, coach had it during two days, he had um, everything set up as a, in a circuit and we had over a hundred guys trying out and he was basically trying to get guys to quit. And so he had six stations and he told us that the first day of practice, he said, we're going to find out what color your blood is. Is it red or is it yellow? And if we don't find out station one, by the time you get to station six, we're going to know. And, um, and so it was just hard nosed football. And, but for me, I, I had always, I'd always stayed in shape. I'd never all those years when I was coaching at these different universities, I always had a philosophy about my coaching that I would never ask one of my athletes to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. And so after I resigned from coaching, I never stopped running sprints. Well, that was the one thing that saved me um, was that I, I could run sprints and, and I could, I was in great physical shape. Well, uh, when we started going through those drills, it was my ability conditioning wise to continue to get back in line and go again and again, that really got the, the coach's attention. And it, it gave me an opportunity to show those young men what, um, what I really could do because they, a lot of them, uh, we were standing in line to get our equipment. And one of the guys, one of the returning players walked up to me and he said, uh, uh, so uh, you going to coach or, or what? And I said, no, man, I'm here to play. He said, to play? He said, man, how old are you? I said, I'm 59. 59! He said, y'all got to come look at this guy. And he started hollering everybody. But when we put those helmets on... What was he, 17 or 18 at the time? Well, he would. He was a 20-year-old. Uh, uh, it was his second year there. And um, so, uh, but uh, yeah. But, you know, um, it was just um, the... I've always loved time travel movies. That's, you know, somewhere in time, um, you know, back to the future. All, I just love those type movies. Being out on that field, the same field that I played on 37 years before, 
And a lot of it was still the same. Hasn't changed that much. And I'm out there with my helmet on and you can't see the wrinkles. And, you know, I'm out there doing all the things that my teammates are doing. And it was like stepping back in time. And I knew, I knew that I was going to wake up one morning and it was going to be over. And there was not one day, there was what not one minute of it that I wasted. I couldn't because I knew how fast it was going to go by. Wow. That's a great life lesson for everybody out there. You never know. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the movie real quick. Uh, Wayfarer Studios, which is Disney Plus's Clouds, is fully financing the film with co-founders Justin Baldoni and Steve Sarowitz producing. The project was developed and will be produced by Select Films' Mark Ciardi in association with 10 Acres Films, Jonathan Duffy and Kelly Williams, who will serve as executive producers. Wayfarer President of Production Andrew Culliff will oversee and produce alongside co-COO Manu Garji, directed by Rod Lurie. Tell us about Rod Lurie. Well, um, let me get to Rod Lurie in just a second. I want to tell you of those names that you read off. The one name that will um, everyone will recognize because of his movies was Mark Chiari. Um, Secretariat, uh, Invincible with Mark Wahlberg. Mm. Um, uh, Game Plan with uh, Dwayne Johnson. The Rookie uh, in, um, um, gosh, A Million Dollar Arm. It goes on and on. He, he had, you know, all these great sports movies. He came back to watch me play. He flew to Texas, came to Alpine, watched me play. And so he was he was pivotal in, in this whole thing. Rod Lurie came in. Um, this guy was um, uh, as, was amazing. Um, he the very first introduction I had to Rod was uh, on a Zoom call. And uh, he told me um, um, that. He had read about me. He said, I know about your faith. And he said, I just got to let you know up front, I'm, I'm not a Christian. He said, uh, actually, I'm an atheist. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, God, I, you know, I've been praying for 14 years for you to send me a, a godly man to direct my movie, and you send me an atheist. atheist. So, <laughs> uh, and I said, okay. And so he, um, he started telling me about his Jewish background. And his father was a uh, a hero in the independence in 1948, and then the Six Day War in '67, and um, that he was born in Israel. Rod was born in Israel, uh, but graduated from West Point here in, in the United States. Served four years in the military, and um, so he was telling me all these things. And I was, you know, I, and he, he told me some movies that he had directed, and I, I watched them. Amazing, amazing talent. And, but we had a connection uh, at that very first meeting. And then as the things began to unwind, he, this was so funny. He, um, he sent me his version of the script because he told me, he said, I'm the general, I'm the director. I can change this script on set. I can do whatever I need to do. And he said, that's the latitude I have as director of this movie. And so I'm saying, okay, okay. And so in my agreement with Wayfarer Studios, my attorney, I told my attorney that Wayfarer Studios sent me the contract. And I told my attorney, I said, okay, I think this looks good. 
but I'd like you to put a clause in there that there will be no language uh, in my movie. Uh, they will not take the Lord's name in vain, and they will not use the name of Jesus in a disrespectful manner. And he said, you're going to blow this deal. He said, there's no way they'll sign that. I said, why? He said, well, you're, what you're doing is you're taking away their creative license, and they're, they're never going to agree to that. And uh, I said, well, put it in there. Let's try. They signed it. So Rod sends me his version of the script and it is loaded with that California language. I mean, it's all in there. And I said, uh, okay, he said, Mike, did you read through, did you read through my my version of script? And I said, yeah, I did. You know, and there's a lot of stuff I love about it. I really do. I said, but are you aware of my contract with Wayfarer Studios? And he said, I am not. And I said, you can't take the Lord's name in vain and the name of Jesus and use it the way you have in this script that we're not doing that. And he said, Oh, okay. Well, I'll take a look at that and let me get back to you. <laughs> well, he comes back to me and he said, okay, I'm taking all of it out. <laughs> and he said, you have my word on that. And uh, so we developed such an amazing relationship throughout that whole movie guy. Rod Lurie is an amazing man. He, he just is. And there is no doubt in my mind that uh, he was the man that God selected specifically for my movie. That's and amazing. He moves. And they're already calling it the Rudy of the Boomer Generation. How, oh, long, yeah. did, how long did it take you for this movie to get made? This was a 2007 story of you going back. So that's quite a while. But how long did it take you? And I had heard, tell me if it's wrong, Maybe Mel Gibson was attached originally, and maybe after he had to drop out Kurt Russell. Is that right? You know, a Mel well, we Gibson had, football started, movie is a whole nother thing. How do you feel about Chickless playing you instead of those heartthrobs ultimately? Well, um, um, Kurt Russell was was the first uh, because of Mark Chiardi's, uh relationship with him in um, uh, the, the hockey movie. Um, the Miracle. Miracle on Ice, yeah. And, and then Kevin Costner was... Uh, he loved it. He wanted to do it, uh, but he had both knees uh, operated on, and he just wow. said, "There's no way I can do it." Then we had a Chinese group come in that wanted a Mel Gibson movie, and they put money in escrow um, for Mel Gibson. When Mel Gibson signed, they were releasing the money from escrow. Well, Mel Gibson loved it. Mark Chiardi went met with him. Um, he um, got ready was getting ready to sign up and everything. And then he, he called Mark and he said, I can't do this. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm 59 years old. And he said, um, I'm not going to embarrass myself. He said, I, he said, I can't do he And he said, I know you've got seconds. I know you have all that, but he said, you still have to have a degree of physicality that I don't have. He said, I just, he said, I, I've got to back out. I can't do it. So he backed out. And um, so it was a 14-year time period. Um, We had it teed up multiple times. And then COVID hit. And um, But Wayfair Studios read the script. Uh, Justin Baldoni um, called and said, we we love this story. We're not going to partner with anyone. We want to pay for all of this. We're going to do this on our own. And um, and they did, and it was just everything. Everything was first class. Um, the 
the whole experience was uh, was just was amazing. And and Eileen and I were there. <laughs> we celebrated our 49th anniversary there on set uh, with the whole crew and everything. Oh, and it was cool. so <laughs> because my number was 49, you know, and and it was our 49th anniversary. It was pretty cool, but they made it special. They just did. They they went the extra mile for us. So there it is, October 13th, 2007, wearing his familiar number 49 jersey, which I see hanging behind you right there. Flint entered the game to an eruption of cheers in a 45-42 triple overtime victory against Texas Lutheran. Flint, supported by his wife, Eileen, their three kids, and his grandson, lined up for nine snaps, including the game-winning field goal. At 59 years old, he defined all odds and expectations of a man his age. Having been away from the field for so long, Flint faced various physical, mental, and emotional challenges. He scrapped through grueling practices, demanding workouts, and skepticism from not only the public, but numerous teammates. Yet despite it all, Flint's determination, leadership, and passion for the game found him a place in the locker room. Unfortunately for Flint, his triumphant return was put on hold as a groin injury and two bulging discs in his neck and back sidelined him for the beginning of the season. As a member of the Lobos, of the Lobos, Flint was named team captain as a junior and honored as an all-conference linebacker. Quote, Mike was instrumental in keeping that team together, said teammate Randy Wilson. He was a team leader. All sound right? Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, you, you know, there was a combination of my younger days and then my older days and that and that uh, description. But going that that championship game, uh, I mean, that game, championship game, that game w- that we won in triple overtime, my first game back on the field, um, it was uh, it was so surreal. And there, there were two games that out of that out of that season that were really epic for me. Um Number one was homecoming. 28 of my former teammates and coaches came back to watch me play um, after all those years. And it was those guys that I'd let down that was they were the greatest regret in my life. And I was being introduced before the game by the president of the college. The governor of Texas had given me a plaque and he asked me to be there early and come out on the field early and he was going to in, introduce all those other players from back 40 years ago, 37 years ago. And they didn't know I was going to be introduced. So they were all out on the field. And then he, the PA system, um, they introduced me, Mike Flint, number 49, Odessa Permian, um, you know, uh, 1969, 1970, uh, 1971 uh, linebacker. And so I came running out on the field. Well, they all turned towards me and started walking towards me as I was running to them. And I thought I was looking at them and I thought, there's no way I can look at these guys because I'm going to start crying. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was looking down and just peripheral vision. I was, you know, and I, I saw their feet as I got up and I, I looked up and they were all crying <laughs> and, wow. um, they, uh, we had a group hug and one of them grabbed me and he said, Mike, you keep talking about how you let us down all those years ago. We knew that fight wasn't your fault and we never blamed you for that. And besides, look, because you came back to play, we're all back together again. So I received that forgiveness that I needed from my teammates to overcome that greatest regret in my life. 
And then homecoming. I mean, uh, my first game back on the field, um, my whole family was there to see me, me play. Um, and the next day was our anniversary. Um, and uh, uh, But my, my, my youngest grandson, my oldest grandson was there to see me play. My, my sisters, my mother, they were all there. Uh, got to see me play my senior year. And the next day, Eileen and I were on a walk uh, on our anniversary. And she said, uh, see, God knew all those years ago when you got kicked out, he was going to give you the senior year back. And it was going to be so much more special uh, because we'd all be able to share in it with you. And wow. so it grandkids was, as well. I mean, amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So now the movie, uh, we are thrilled to be able to bring Mike Flint's incredible true story to the big screen. He is the Rudy of the boomer generation and has proven that it's never too late to chase one's dreams, said Baldoni. I've been a fan of Michael Chiklis for years, and he is perfect for this role. He's devoted immense time to study and train to embody Flint. Michael Chiklis, for those that don't know, as Mike Flint was Mackie from The Shield, The Thing, and the Fantastic Four movies, and uh, the TV show The Commish. Mary Stuart Masterson plays Mike's wife, Eileen, a voice of reason who offers tough love while supporting her husband's dream. Is that all the true story? Are they, are they, did they do a good job? Oh, they were outstanding. They, they really were. Michael Chiklis was, he was such a mentor. We had so many young actors. I'm, I want to tell you something. I'm these, you remember the movie Grease when it first came out and they had sure. all these young actors that no one had seen before. And they all went on to have incredible careers. That's, we've got some young actors in this movie that are just, they're phenomenal. Their acting ability, their personalities, they're, they're, they were sponges. And Michael Chiklis was constantly mentoring them, talking with them. And, um, and then Rod Lurie and his guidance and leadership and all that. And Bob Isley that wrote the script. Oh, he did. He's such, such an amazing job working with everybody on it as well. And so Rob Cordry will play Sam Weston, the sole Ross University football coach who sees great drive, talent, and ambition within Flint and is aware of the challenges that he will face playing the game at almost 60 years of age. College coaching is a high-pressure job, high turnover. A coach to make a, to take a chance on you must have been a special relationship, um, you know, because if it didn't work out, he'd be on the hook. What was your experience like with Sam Weston and well, Rob Cordray playing Sam Weston? Well, it was, um, you know, it, it was a, a really amazing um, a relationship because here's what he was faced with. He's he's a, a very good football coach, but all of a sudden the media comes in when this gets out and his program, every decision that he makes is under a microscope. And that's because of me. And so everything that he does, every decision that he makes is double guest, and I mean, he gets mail from Japan. Uh, it's amazing how this story spread like like wildfire. And uh, then I bulged two discs in my neck, and we're trying to keep it out of the media. Well, you know, it was a matter of time before we had to let them know what was going on because Kevin Everett uh, for the Buffalo Bills. Um, 25-year-old uh, tight end uh, bulged, uh, ruptured those same two discs that I bulged uh, in a game, uh, and it was on national TV, and 
they had it not been for cryogenics and the team doctor on the field, he would have died there on the field. Um, they thought he was going to be a quadriplegic. He fully recovered, lives in Houston. I believe that he's he lives a normal, healthy life, but he never played another down of football. And so now I'm 59 years old. I've badly bulged those same two discs and coach, you know, coach Wright was the coach's name, Weston in the movie, but, um, He's got to manage that that whole thing. The orthopedist said, there's no way you're playing again. This is over. This is over. And I told him, I said, look, I've got a PhD in Mike Flint. Um, I know my body. And if you'll tell me what I need to do, um, then I'll do it. And I, I can come back. But don't totally lock me out. And so they said, okay, here's what you have to accomplish. And I did. Uh, you know, I, I went through everything. My background is a, in the fitness industry helped me immensely. And so, um, I was able, I was finally released. Uh, the, um, orthopedic surgeon said, if you stick your head in one time, one wrong hit, then those discs will rupture and you may be a quadriplegic being a wheelchair the rest of your life. Wow. And I no uh, said it was going to be easy. Those are some pretty high stakes. Yeah. Um, I don't want to run out of town with you yet. You were mentioning the young actors. Young Brandon Flynn plays Micah Flint. Is that yes. your son? Is that character yes. your son? Yes, that was my son. Yeah. My dad and I, and, and that people will realize in the book, had a very um, uh, difficult relationship. He was D-Day invasion in World War II, was wounded in the Battle of the Bulge, and he brought that military mindset to raising me and um so um he um we would box we were at age six when he called it boxing i was pretty sure what we were doing was fighting um but um went on for uh seven years uh till i was age 13 and um uh, but um it was that it was the mental mindset more than the physical training that he always had me uh, watching, always aware of everything going on around me because I wasn't a troublemaker, but I became a trouble seeker because I was good at it. Uh, I mean, I was good at fighting. And in West Texas, <laughs> if, um, you know, with the Cowboys and, and football and the Roughnecks and the oil field, and if you don't mind fighting, there's going to be a lot of opportunities. <laughs> It's so, crazy that your dad's football team became the movie Friday Night Lights and the TV series, and, and now your life is a movie. What would your dad think of that? Is he still with us? No, no. Oh. Uh, my dad died in, in uh, 1994, but um, uh, my dad was was proud of me. Uh, he was um, he would have been so excited, amazed. Uh, he had just been walking around with a smile on his face all the time, but. Yeah, uh, but great. yeah, Friday, Friday Night Lights was, it was our team, my senior year that won that first state championship that started that whole tradition that ended up uh, evolving into the book and the movie Friday Night Lights. Oh, that's amazing. So also in Franklin, Tennessee, I interviewed last week, John Jubilee and his 555 uh, lift, which he did, spoiler alert yes. for everybody. Yeah, uh, I was people there. That People that watch my video on it can see you raising the green flag each time, 14 reps. Um, what is your relationship with John and energized health? And then I got another question for you on that. 
Okay, uh, John and I go back uh, over 20 years. Uh, John and I met on a track here at Franklin High School. Uh, I was out working out and been doing running some sprints, and John was out there um, had been doing uh, some exercising with some with some clients of his. And um, uh, John and I met. Uh, we just started talking. We were both cooling down, so we walked the track. And um, in that one meeting, um, John asked me a few questions about the shape I was in physically and things that he could do, uh, offer to his clients. And so I began to show him the muscle against muscle exercises that you could do while you're walking that he still uses today in his program. And so over the years, uh, we've stayed in touch. Uh, he's been a fan, um, me going back to play and then, uh, uh, the movie, um, you know, he's just been a great friend. And what did you say, um, to John before the lift? Well, I gave John, uh, two, um, he didn't need to, but I gave him these bands that uh, um, that I have been involved with for, for many years now. And I told him, I said, um, um, when you start this, um, he said, I'm going to try to get five. He said, I'm going to try to do five with this. And I said, John, don't stop. Don't stop at five. I said, I'm telling you, do not stop. You just, everything's got to be tight. You squeeze those handles and you blow it out. And he got 14. <laughs> it was. Oh, now we know. Okay. All right. Yeah, that, it was you, were the, you were the inspiration for that. A good job. Um, all right. So I just got a few more minutes left here. Um, I, I just want to get a sense. What do you make of the state of college football today since your whole life has been dedicated to it? Do you like the NIL and seeing guys on Wendy's commercials during their own games? What, what's your thought of today's college NCAA football? Um, I think that there are some uh, some good things, some pluses and minuses in that. I think when you've got um, like uh, Deion Sanders' uh, son, is it Shader? Um, um, so anyway, Colorado, is that Colorado quarterback? Yeah, yeah he's making um, $5 million a year um, in NIL money. And, you know, um, that it's it's hard whether you start or whether you play or not that that money's being paid and um i think that there are a lot of i'm, I'm pretty sure there are not many coaches on the sidelines that are making that kind of money that are putting in the hours they are the recruiting and all that and so that disparity there money has a funny way of really causing problems in just about everything it's involved in and it takes, um, basically, it's a professional game now down at the college level. And so um, I know like SMU, every player on SMU's team makes $10,000 uh, a month. Um, they That's just how much money they get paid uh, for playing at SMU. And other programs, you know, it's it's just the high caliber athletes uh, then you've got the the lower caliber athletes that don't get all the publicity and the exposure. They're not making much money, and it it's going to create problems. It's just so new right now that they hadn't had time to surface, but they will. And um, I think it's gonna. I think the uh, NCAA is going to have to step in, and there's going to have to be some guidelines. Just, there just will be because right now it's the wild wild west, and 
I just don't think it's going to go unsupervised for very long. It is. And it's so hard to coach those kids when, when they're making more money than they deserve or, or not deserve, but can handle and then uh, be actually told what to do. All right. We got just two more minutes left. So when does the movie come out um, for everybody to see? Uh, we are going to watch the premiere the 9th of November. Um, um, William Morris and Endeavor uh, is working with several different distributors we we're having a, a great advantage in that we've got a finished movie with this writer strike and then the actors guild strike that you know the writer strike has finally been resolved but still they've got a lot of catching up to do we've got a finished movie and so it's a football movie um they are wanting to release it either this fall or between the nfl playoffs when those are completed and the super bowl uh, that, that week uh, between the, the end of the season. So we'll see, but it's it's coming out. It's ready to go. Awesome. Well, we will keep an eye on it in uh, 17 years in the making. This is fantastic. So 60 seconds, tell everyone where they can go to follow you, um, maybe on social, learn more about you. Um, if you have a website, let us know. Okay. Uh, my website is mikeflint.com. Uh, I don't do a lot of uh, social media. That's all going to change. I've been told, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I'm, I can be reached at my website. My email address is Mike Flint and, it, and it's F-L-Y-N-T. It's all lowercase Mike Flint and the number 49 at gmail.com. And uh, I'm real good about uh, returning emails. Awesome. Well, thanks for being an inspiration and thanks for coming on the Mill Creek View. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof. Look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hey, my name is Amy Souza. I am a women's rights activist uh, and workshop leader, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View podcast. Oh, that was great, Steve. What a! I didn't even know who this guy was, and because uh, I don't watch football, so what a wonderful, wonderful interview with uh, Mike. Yeah. And uh, that's a movie I might want to watch. There's no doubt about it. I think we all should. And uh, for you P1 listeners, you may have noticed a new format to the show. Hope you like it. It's tighter for sure. Uh, put Steve to the challenge. He's got to put up flashcards for the time left. Um, but uh, today is day one, so bear with me. Uh, this is so you can see it and tell your friends to watch us on TECN.TV soon. All right, let's start with this clip of a mom that has had it. Very articulate lady, says it all very well with no notes. I believe, Steve, tell us, 
at the end if she reads off notes. Uh, definitely awake and pissed off. Clip number one. Hello, everyone. Um, I've been coming here for five years now, and I was going to talk to you about some practical things that I thought you could change about 3210, but I've changed my mind. Um, I've been really confused over the last five years as to why we spend 45 minutes to an hour of every public meeting talking about how great everyone is and how great everything is in the schools, and now I've figured it out. I figured it out because all these people came here to defend you all from hurtful words. This is obnoxious. Let me just say, there is one goal for the educational system. It should be to prepare children to enter careers to be productive members of society. It is not a counseling session. It is not a self-help area. It is not somewhere to find yourself. And we should not be led by the children, for goodness sake. The children are called dependents for a reason. They depend on us who have fully developed brains. You cannot feel your way through life. The issues that we are talking about, we are bringing you statistics. We are talking about scholastics. We are talking about funding. We are we're talking about busing. We are talking about trying to figure out how to make our children be as successful as possible. And I am sure that that is your goal. And what we have been called tonight is what they're claiming that we're saying to children. We're having an adult conversation. There are not children in this room. We aren't going into the schools and calling them names. They call us Marxists and hateful and bigots and everything else under the sun. Well, let me tell you. Less than 5% of the entire population of North Carolina identifies as LGBTQ. You guys all claim you want democracy. Well, you know what democracy is? It's the majority plus one. It's 50 plus one. You know what? More than 50% of the people in this state claim that they believe in God, Almighty God, who made us male and female. God who made marriage between a man and a woman. God who said that we must protect our children. The fact that we can stand up here and we know, we can brag about all of the wonderful graduations, but we know, we know the statistics. 50% of children did not pass their end of grade test. What are we celebrating? We have, we have children coming up here telling us how horrible the mental health crisis is. Why? Most of us went to public school, and all of our all of our peers are not in mental health crises. We have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to our children? I'm going to say we are discussing things with them that they are not emotionally, intellectually, and morally able to handle. That is what is causing the anxiety. That is what is causing the depression. That is what is causing the confusion. We need our children to be able to be children, to be able to be innocent, to be able to enjoy childhood. And not know all of the drama and all of the difficulties in adult life. That is what we want. We want our children to be able to read and write and to think for themselves. And we demand that the children who fear God are protected in your schools. Amen. No notes. Okay. Do y'all feel out there sometimes like that these days? Uh, don't you wish you could articulate it at the podium as well as she did? Hit the back button on the show and take notes. Go to your next school board meeting and tell them what she said. They just might listen if they don't arrest you. Okay, that was cynical. Uh, participating <laughs> in democracy is important or else you get one party rule and more of this. Top 10 worst laws California Democrats approved in 2023 by Daniel Cho. Here's a list of the 10 worst new laws approved in California in 2023. So people don't think I'm making this up. Number one, 
giving free lawyers for illegal immigrants out of the state budget. Gavin Newsom and the California Democrats are continuing to divert billions of dollars in state taxpayer funds to provide a wide range of free services and benefits to illegal immigrants, including completely free health care. To add insult to injury, California Democrats are using $60 million in state taxpayer funds to hire free lawyers that illegal immigrants can use to sue our own government as well as fight deportation. Number two, taking children away from parents, AB 665. Newsom and state Democrats passed AB 665, which makes it easier for children as young as 12 to be taken away from their parents. Existing state law required that a child could only be removed and emancipated if a licensed therapist or health professional determined that abuse or neglect was occurring that posed a threat to the child in the parent's home and the child was mature enough to govern their own affairs. AB 665 removes any need to show abuse, neglect, or a threat and allows even an intern or trainee to make the decisions. Perhaps one of the most reckless and anti-parent bills ever conceived is now law. Steve, is there one of those in Washington? Oh, yes, there is. Number three, advancing government-run health care, SB 770. California state government intrusion into its health care system has already resulted in a massive price spike for care, but that's about to get much worse as the state initiates a complete government takeover of all health care with SB 770 approved by Newsom and California Democrats. SB 770 instructs state officials to begin negotiations on obtaining a federal waiver to redirect all federal health care funds, including from Medicare and other federal health programs, that's my taxpayer dollars, to support an untested government-run health care system costing $500 billion annually. <sighs> Billion. Next step, a ban on private health insurance and a massive tax hike. Number four. Create a more toxic workplace, SB 497. California labor regulations already have made our state the worst place to create, thankfully not our state, their state, to create jobs in by imposing high costs and high risks. But Newsom and California Democrats approved SB 497 to exponentially increase the risk to all businesses by changing the burden of proof on worker retaliation cases. SB, SB 497 any disgruntled employee will be accused, will be assumed to be a victim of retaliation, and the employer has very little chance of protecting itself from false retaliation claims. In addition, Newsom and California Democrats made it harder for businesses to justify creating jobs in our state by passing SB 363 to limit the use of arbitration. Two minutes, okay. Stripping school, this number five, stripping school boards of curriculum powers. Newsom, California Democrats approved SB 1078 they say is designed to stop book banning in California schools, yet this bill will only serve as an infringement of local control over curriculum decisions and limit the ability of parents and communities to have a say in what is taught in schools. Number six, eliminate discipline in schools. Newsom and California Democrats are fostering a culture of lawlessness by banning any suspension of students who engages in willful defiance. California Demo Democrats say it is racist to punish unruly students who disrupt the classroom with a special suspension. Number seven, making it easier to release criminals. With property and violent crimes continue to spike across the state, Newsom and California Democrats approve SB 81 to allow early parole for prison inmates regardless of their behavior in prison, chances of reoffending, or its impact on victims. Number eight, infringing on your rights to self-defense, SB 2 and AB 28. Newsom and California Democrats have created a crime wave with their other negligent policies, but now they want to make it harder for you to defend yourself by imposing a massive excise tax on guns and ammunition, as well as severely restricting your rights to conceal carry. 
Number nine, setting the stage for a carbon tax and an SUV tax. Washington already has it. Yes. Expect two new big taxes to come in California real soon under two new laws approved by Gavin Newsom and state Democrats. SB 253 estimated a carbon emissions reporting requirement on all businesses and sets to the stage to then tax companies based on their carbon footprint, a key element of the Green New Deal. Number 10, finally, and there are more, repealing Prop 13 and raising taxes, ACA 1 and ACA 13. Newsom and California Democrats are supporting two laws now being presented to voters to gut Prop 13 and make it easier to raise your taxes. ACA 1 reduced the voter approval threshold from a two-thirds supermajority to just 55%. Uh, for local general obligation bonds and blah, blah, blah. That's not good for the housing market. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast. That's Tennessee, Washington, and now TECN.TV. Search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button and follow us. I really hope you like it. Got a bunch of you new to us this month. Welcome and thank you for doing it. Getting old is a fascinating thing. The older you get, the older you want to get. Keith Richards, 80. The Rolling Stones are on track to secure their 14th number one album with Hackney Diamonds, released this week. The band's first album of original material in 18 years since 2005's Big, A Bigger Bang. Anyone who stops learning is old, whether at 20 or 80. Anyone who keeps learning stays young. Henry Ford, that's the quote on my advertising, because I firmly believe that you have to keep learning. So much to learn. I was always taught to respect my elders, and I've now reached the age when I don't have anyone to respect. George Burns. Kids, George Burns was a comedian, actor, writer, and singer, and one of the few entertainers whose career successfully spanned vaudeville, radio, film, and television, lived to 100. Bob Hope made it to 100, too. The secret of eternal youth is to lie about your age, he'd say. Or, I'll tell you how to stay young. Hang around with older people. In an interview to the Weekly World News in 1981, at age 78, he revealed this nugget. I walk two miles every day, no matter what city I'm in. Hope learned about the importance of walking from his grandfather. When he was 96 years old, he walked two miles to the local pub every day to get a drink, Hope said. He died within a month of his 100th birthday, and he remained mentally sharp till the very end. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Mike Flint, for reminding us you can do anything you put your mind to at any age, just like Mick, Keith, Bob Hope, and George Burns. Oh, God. Check out that movie with John Denver. Classic. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us and now host on TECN.TV. Peace in our time and G2G. Okay, let's go out on something new that's old again or old and new again from Mick Jagger and the boys and Lady Gaga from the new album. Bonus clip of Steve being interviewed by local television network WKRN.
plenty of national coverage right now in Franklin. Uh, voters are going to the polls to pick their next round of city leaders. The spotlight has been on the mayoral race between incumbent Kim Moore and the current alderman, Gabriel Hansen. Now, turnout for early voting far surpassed previous elections. Nearly a 17 percent of registered voters in Franklin went to vote early. Uh, as you can see, that's way beyond the election in 2021 and 2019 when the number was about 3 percent. So we spoke to Steve Bromowitz. Um, he's the host of Mill Creek View, the Tennessee podcast. He said the massive turnout for a heated debate about the Franklin Pride Festival back in June, as well as local and national coverage of Alderman Hansen's ethics inquiries, have driven up interest, certainly, on both sides. Hansen has made headlines for comments about the Covenant massacre and for being accompanied by men identified as white nationalists. So there's real live city management issues that are probably more important than this. Like I say about my show, there are more controversial guests than this issue, but everyone wants to talk about this issue, including the late night comedians. So, um, I, I honestly do believe that a huge portion, I don't know about 51%, but a huge portion of the vote today is going to be about the social issues over the, the real-life city issues. Another factor, keep in mind the massive influx of people to Franklin. The boom is not unique to Middle Tennessee, but observers are curious how the views of all the new residents could impact this race specifically on the social issues that have been hot topics. It did have its effect where it turned off a lot of people, it angered a lot of people, but it also activated a lot of people. So we will see two thirds of the residents don't aren't from Franklin, Tennessee. My, the pastor that I met when I first moved here, the, there was only 5,000 people here. That was like 25 years ago, 30 years ago. There's now 80,000 growing to 100,000. That's part of the development issue. So here's what you need to know. Polls open at 7 here, so in just about 40 minutes, and they close at 7 this evening. There will be eight locations in Franklin. Residents can vote at any one of them. You can go to WKRN.com for a link. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.